This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 16, The Sketch. The Pacific Northwest signature green and white ferry slices through the frigid waters of the Puget Sound. I remember clearly I was standing at the bow that day and the biting wind was swirling my hair around. It was brutally cold but it was clear and the sky was brilliantly blue. And yet, I was on a grim mission. I was sailing to Bremerton from Seattle to meet up with the cold case detective, Marty Garland. At the time, it did feel epic. I was getting the interrogation video that had solved two ice cold murder cases from back in the 90s. Now, if you're a regular listener of the show, then you'll remember meeting Detective Garland before. He's from the Bremerton Police Department, and I interviewed him in a previous Murder Chronicles episode that's called Justice, the case of the double homicide of a young mother and her four-year-old daughter. I had boarded the ferry at Seattle's Pier 52, and as I drove my car off the ferry, I was reminded of just how Bremerton felt like a world away from the bustling city of Seattle, which I had left behind. Now, Bremerton is a port city on the Kitsap Peninsula, and today, real estate is booming there because many Seattleites, who can work anywhere now if they have a solid internet connection, have traded in city living with its expensive price tag for more affordable housing and bang for your buck in Bremerton. But in the early 1990s, Bremerton was considered more blue-collar. The largest employers are the Naval Base and the Puget Sound Naval Shipyard. I could have had Detective Marty Garland mail me the flash drive with the 10-hour interrogation video footage, but I wanted to pick it up from him in person at the police station because afterward, I planned on exploring the waterfront. I had a destination in mind. The Drift-In Saloon. The Drift-In opened its doors back in the 1950s, and in terms of longevity in the restaurant business, that's about as consistent as the tides themselves. And as it was in the 1950s, as it still is today, it's a treasure to a local community. We have something similar in my neck of the woods. It's called Doofers. What a name, right? I imagine the drift in, like Doofers, is a come-as-you-are destination after a hard day. Especially, say, your boss is being a jerk or your kids are driving you crazy. Your local dive bar is a place to unwind. A sea of flat screens tuned into whatever sports are in season, dartboards, neon beer signs, pull tabs, a jukebox, you get the idea. And if you're a frequent flyer, people there know your name. And no one cares if you're wearing sweats or ripped jeans. It doesn't matter. You just feel accepted. I think this is how Marilyn Hickey must have felt on the nights when she would drift in to the drift-in saloon wearing her signature Elvis t-shirts. Everyone knew Marilyn, but they called her by her nickname, the Elvis Lady, an homage to her undying love of the king, which she made sure to play regularly on that old jukebox. 
1992, Marilyn Hickey was 57 years old. She was small in stature at five feet tall, but she was legendary at shooting the shit as she played pool. She was outgoing and had a trusting nature, especially at the Drift Inn. What did she have to fear? The Drift Inn was close to the ferry docks and a mile away from Marilyn's home, which was convenient because she didn't drive. Marilyn had some chronic medical issues, but she took it in stride, not letting her worries stop her from being social and enjoying herself at the tavern. It was a Wednesday night, September 9th, 1992, and the Elvis lady was at the Drift Inn. She had been playing pool that evening, chatting it up with a young man. At closing time, the bartender gave last call and would remember seeing Marilyn leave with the young man at around 2 a.m. As I mentioned, Marilyn didn't drive, and so she took a cab home that night, and the driver would later say that he dropped her off at her house with a mysterious man early that morning, just after 2. Now, Marilyn lived alone, but she was a social butterfly. She was the type of person whose home looked lived in. You know the type. Her curtains were always wide open year-round, and her lifestyle was such that there was just this openness, which is why over the course of the next couple of days, when folks saw her curtains buttoned up tight with no sign of Marilyn, it fell off. Friends worried. Maybe she'd had some kind of medical emergency, which raised alarm bells when no one saw her and her front door was locked. Officers were called to her residence because she hadn't been seen for a couple of days. And she was real well known in the neighborhood and was seen often with her door open, kind of saying hi to friends as they went by. Officers pounded on her door and no one answered. Knowing that she had some serious health issues, they felt a sense of urgency, pulled out a pocket knife and jimmied the window open, big enough to crawl inside. That's where they saw Marilyn on the floor. Found her uh, dead on the living room floor with a pair of scissors shoved through her heart and she had been strangled to death and she had been uh, obviously sexually assaulted. I don't know if you caught that. Marty says that Marilyn had obviously been sexually assaulted. And there's a reason that he describes the assault in this way. And the sexual assault will play a key role in the investigation, which we'll get to later. But for now, back at Marilyn's home, which had become a crime scene, forensic investigators went about their meticulous work of preserving the scene and collecting evidence. DNA as a tool for crime fighting was still in its infancy, so shoe leather detective work commenced with vigor. Who would do this to Marilyn? Did she have any enemies? One of the detective's first stops was her home away from home at the Drift Inn Saloon. The bartender there was their first point of contact, and they recalled last seeing Marilyn leaving the tavern with a young man that night. But the bartender had no idea who this young man was, and none of the regulars did either. No one knew what his relationship or connection to Marilyn was, on a global perspective, or even down to that night. The cab driver who picked up Marilyn at the Drift Inn after last call confirmed to police that he dropped her off with the young man at her house, and this stranger matched the description of the witnesses at the bar. Time of death indicated that Marilyn had died sometime after 2 a.m. when she got home from the bar. So they needed to find that stranger that, unbelievably, no one seemed to know. Investigators pinned their hopes on a composite sketch that they were able to put together with the help of the bartender who remembered the stranger's features and what he was wearing. And the sketch was widely circulated in Bremerton and on the local news. Law enforcement were sure that they would get some kind of tips. The stranger in the sketch 
had shoulder-length hair. He was described as last leaving the Drift Inn on Wednesday, September 9th, 1992, at about 2 a.m. with Marilyn Hickey. He was white, about 22 to 25 years old, between 5'8 and 5'10, and he weighed about 160 pounds, that he had reddish-brown collar-length hair, and that the man was last seen wearing a dark waist-length jacket and blue denim trousers. But no one came forward. The young man appeared to be a ghost. His identity nothing more than a sketch on a piece of paper. But he wasn't a ghost. He was flesh and blood. And he'd been seen with Marilyn that night by multiple witnesses. And it really is tragic to think of Marilyn's last night on Earth and at the Drift-In Saloon. I'm sure that night she was in what felt like her safe space at her favorite spot. Although we don't know what Marilyn's relationship was with the young man that night, witnesses made it clear that he was playing pool with her and they spent a lot of time together. They looked like they were having fun. I wonder if Marilyn played her favorite song, Suspicious Minds. If only Marilyn had been just a little bit more suspicious that night. That may have been her favorite song, but that wasn't her style. She was friendly to all, and this stranger, he was a predator, and Marilyn was his prey. Over a decade went by, but detectives hadn't forgotten about Marilyn or the way that she'd been brutally murdered and how the stranger had never been identified. Now, it was well into the mid-2000s, and all that well-preserved evidence collected at the scene presented the opportunity now to finally identify the killer with a modern-day genetic sketch. The rape kit that was performed on Marilyn, which had been collected and stored, was now in play. In 2006, those samples were resubmitted to the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab for testing. This time around, they were able to get a full DNA profile on the man they believed was responsible for Marilyn's murder. They put it into the full profile, put it into CODIS, and it gets no hit. Great DNA sample, full sample, but no, it doesn't match to anybody. So it just sits and rattles around and rattles around and rattles around in CODIS for years to come. Another decade goes by, and the DNA rattling around CODIS suddenly stops. They get a hit, but it's not what they were expecting. The hit doesn't identify who the DNA belongs to, but investigators in Bremerton learn that the DNA belonging to who they believe is Marilyn's killer turns up at another crime scene in a different state. Cheryl Barrett from Boise, Idaho was raped and murdered on April 21, 1994. She'd been sexually assaulted and had been stabbed in the heart. Her neck had been slashed so viciously that she'd nearly been decapitated. About 2017-ish, I am assigned the case because CODIS calls us up and says, good news, we got a hit. And they send us the details on the hit, and the hit is to another unsolved murder, not to a person. So now we've got two murders with the same full DNA profile, but neither match to an actual human being because we don't know who that person is. The Idaho cold case detective who was working Cheryl Barrett's case uploaded the DNA profile left by the man they believed was the killer, and that's what prompted the CODIS alert in the Marilyn Hickey case. Detective Garland digs into the murder investigation of Cheryl Barrett, and he finds out that the killer's M.O. is very similar. She was also stabbed and also strangled. 
her, in fact, her head had been nearly cut off. Uh, she was nearly decapitated during the attack on her. So they have two unsolved murder cases from the 1990s with the exact same DNA profile. So psychologically, we're thinking just like everybody else, I think probably 90% of uh, law enforcement or non-law enforcement would, would kind of put you into these categories. Our guy's either dead or he's in prison for something else along those lines, because we're thinking, why would we have these cases that are now 20 plus years old and have great full DNA profiles and nobody to match them to? You know, you think if this guy went on ahead of time and committed other murders or did other things that we would have eventually caught him in the intervening 20 years, or we would at least have other matches out there that we would be matching to if he kind of led this spree of, you know, bodies across the U.S. So he's probably either a dead person or he is um, somebody who's been in jail for some other crime that he didn't have to have his DNA taken from. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there are a couple of odd states out there where they don't take your DNA until you're released from prison. So you can go to prison for 25 years and never have given your DNA until the day you're released, and then it gets matched to something. So those are kind of the odd cases that are out there. I think Colorado maybe is one of those, but so those are the kind of things that you think, well, maybe he falls into that category where he was convicted of some serious crime in one of these states, put into jail, and now we're just kind of waiting until at some point his DNA is taken. According to PewTrust.com, more than 30 states swab suspects for DNA samples when they are arrested for a felony and entered into a national database. They do this hoping to solve cold cases and prevent future crimes, but opponents say the process doesn't respect the presumption of innocence. Now that Detective Garland was aware of the second murder victim, he wanted to compare notes with the Idaho cold case detective who was working the Cheryl Barrett homicide. So Detective Garland calls up Detective Monty Iverson from Idaho and started a game of what he calls Detective Go Fish. The first thing I did was pick up the phone and call over to the detective in Boise, who now was a different detective than had been working it at the time our other detective had been working it. And his name is Monty. And Monty and I got on the phone together and we decided, you know what, we know that Detective GoFish has already been done, but let's, maybe there's been names added to your case file or my case file that are different that let's go through it. And so we did that and we found that one of the names that had been originally sent over to him to have compared to their case file, the person who sent it over had uh, reversed the name, had put the middle name in place of the first name and, and vice versa. And so that's why they hadn't gotten a match. And so when we did it a second time and went through those names one by one, we found one name that matched with their case file and my case file. Finding a name connected to both cases was a huge leap forward for both of the investigations. The name that Marty is referring to was found on a slip of paper collected from Marilyn's purse. We'll be back after a quick break. scrap of paper in her purse, she had written down Lee Miller and his phone number. No notations about it, no reason for it to be there, no nothing. And it had been photographed and cataloged, but nothing had ever been done as far as follow-up on it. Nobody ever tried to figure out why his name was on a scrap of paper in her purse. 
which I'm not going to fault the detectives for it because when you're going through a woman's purse, you just never know what you're going to find. And, you know, it's a little piece of scrap of paper with a name written on it at the bottom of her purse who has any idea that it would have anything to do with her murder. But Marty was going to follow up this time. The name Lee Miller, other than that scrap of paper in Marilyn's purse, hadn't come up in either of the investigations. So we know how his name came up via that piece of paper in Marilyn's purse, but how the name Lee Miller came up in Cheryl Barrett's murder is a little more convoluted. As Idaho detective Monty Iverson explains to Detective Garland, The reason that it came up in his case file was because this guy had gone to jail for something else, and while he was in jail way back in the 90s, he had mentioned to his cellmate, uh, they had started talking about, you know, what's the worst thing you've done? What's the worst thing you've done? Do you think you could kill anybody? You know, as, as bored guys will do while they're in jail. And his he, he said, well, not only could I kill somebody, but I did kill somebody. And he proceeded to tell him about this murder that he committed in Boise only months earlier. While this cellmate then went and talked to a police officer about it, and the police actually rigged up the cellmate with a recording device and sent him back in there to talk to this guy about it. And he, at this point, says, I don't know what you're talking about. You must be making this up. I never said anything like that. You need to quit bothering me. And obviously, he was kind of onto it or it realized that he had said too much the first time around. And so they dropped it way back in the, like, 95, like two years after the, their murder. They had dropped it because they didn't have anything further to go on this guy and didn't have any other links to put him in the case file other than this Sully who had said that he had admitted to it. Now, I have to pause here because it's always hard for me to understand the mindset of prisoners who confide in their cellmates as if they aren't going to tell anyone. No, it's the hardest thing to figure out. And it happens so incredibly often. It's almost like this, you know, it's I don't know. I heard one person talk about it one time and it's like, you know, it wouldn't be any fun if you won the lottery, but you were the only person on Earth and you couldn't tell anybody about it because you'd have all this money and no place to spend it or all this clout and no place to tell anybody about it. And it's almost like these guys, they feel like, man, I literally got away with murder. But if nobody ever knows about it, you know, what, what's the fun of getting away with murder? And so they feel like I gotta brag about it or I have to tell somebody to kind of get this, this clout or this mystique, you know, to kind of uh, revel in it. Doing an extremely thorough case review, Marty finds something else in Marilyn's file. A seemingly insignificant tip that had never been followed up on way back when, now when paired with that scrap of paper with Lee Miller's name and number, and that a Lee Miller allegedly told a cellmate that he'd murdered Cheryl Barrett, he felt like he had something. Tip called in anonymously that said, I know this guy named Lee Miller and he works at the McDonald's in Paul's Bow and he knows a little bit too much about the murder that happened in Brooklyn. And it's an anonymous tip that was phoned in. And to, for the life of me, I can't find any place where it had ever been followed up on. And so it had just sat there all these years. Obviously, they look up Lee Miller. He's now a 54-year-old man living in Boise, Idaho, which means Miller would have been in his 20s at the time of Marilyn Hickey's murder, and that back then, he was living in Bremerton. They look at an old booking photo from that time period when he was in his 20s, and they were gobsmacked. The sketch fits with the shoulder-length hair that's reddish in color, sort of like a long mullet. Now, they need to get his DNA. We find out Lee Miller's still living in Boise, Idaho, and he's still alive, and he's 
just doing his thing, living his life. And so we, uh, they dispatch a group of guys to follow him around. And sure enough, he discards a cigarette butt. And uh, surreptitious sample. Yep, surreptitious sample. I've still got the picture on my computer of the smoking cigarette butt on the on the sidewalk that the detective took before he snatched it up. I, it's one of my favorite pictures because it just shows. Oh my gosh, you've got wow. it. Will you send that to me so I can? Oh, present? awesome. Oh, oh, it's perfect because it you know it shows how fresh it was because it's still smoldering before he even picks <laughs> it up. You know, and I just think, oh, it's just it's just perfect. It was just perfect in more ways than one. The DNA from that smoldering butt matched 100% to the DNA samples that were collected in both the Marilyn Hickey and Cheryl Barrett murder cases. But here's where it gets tricky. Lee Miller's DNA was at both crime scenes, but they didn't want to jump the gun by arresting him right away. They had to get to work building their cases, and that meant evaluating the evidence. In the Idaho case, Lee Miller's DNA profile came from a blanket, which isn't a slam dunk. When you get a semen sample off of a blanket, it's, you know, it's like getting a semen sample off of a blanket at a motel. It could have been somebody that was there six months ago or a year ago. We don't know. There's no real good putting it into perspective as far as the crime goes. It's very interesting that it's there. And obviously, if it shows up at two murder scenes like this does, it, it adds significance. But it doesn't say that he was there at the time or in near proximity to when this murder happened. Whereas ours, we can say pretty safely that he was with our victim within 48 hours of when she died. Earlier in the show, I had mentioned a very specific way in which Marty referred specifically to Marilyn's sexual assault. Found her uh, dead on the living room floor with a pair of scissors shoved through her heart and she had been strangled to death and she had been uh, obviously sexually assaulted as well. I just want to advise that this next cut is extremely graphic and not suitable for all listeners. I'm sharing this with you now because it's an important detail in the case, but it's hard to hear. You know, if it isn't bad enough to talk about a woman being raped in her own home and then being strangled and then being, you know, shoved a pair of scissors through her heart as she's dying or is already dead, uh, you know, then we, it's funny because, you know, we talked about all those things prior to the hairbrush, but then when I told you about the hairbrush, you were like, oh my God. And I could see the reaction, you know, on your face there. And it's just like, it almost takes it to this new level. Like as if this person wasn't bad enough, now they've just reached a new level of some kind of sadistic pleasure that they take in this whole thing. But this savage detail of what the killer did to Marilyn will ultimately be the nail in his coffin. Marty says that not only did the killer sexually assault Marilyn, strangle her, plunge scissors into her heart, that he violated her with a hairbrush. And it was there, at the tip of the hairbrush, that a DNA sample was collected that only a killer could have left. So I went back through the pictures and I was able to isolate one picture that was taken at the scene where uh, you can see maybe a quarter of an inch of that hairbrush that's still outside the body that the offender had not been able to shove inside. And I talked to the DNA scientist about, well, what, what about well, if we just tested this tiny little end of this hairbrush, what do you think about that? And he said, you know what? It's a murder case. It's unsolved for this many years. Send it to me and we'll do what we can. And doggone it, if I didn't get a semen sample off of the very tip of that hairbrush that was 
still sticking outside of her body. And that matched Lee Miller as well. This extra step to test the tip of the hairbrush was crucial to both cases because at the end of the day, even though they had DNA from Lee Miller at both crime scenes, so strong physical evidence, add to that a lot of circumstantial evidence. Lee Miller's alleged jailhouse confession about Cheryl's murder, the sketch that was made from the bartender at the Drift Inn, which looked a lot like him, the tip called in from the fast food employee who had worked with Lee Miller around the time that Marilyn had been murdered and who had been creeped out with the conversations he had with Miller, thinking that he seemed to know a little bit too much about her murder. And the scrap of paper in Marilyn's purse with the name Lee Miller on it and his phone number. But the reality was the Idaho case was pretty much all circumstantial. But their DA had looked at their case and said, man, all we've got really is DNA on a blanket in the scene, but nothing, we've got no witnesses putting him there. And in fact, six months after they, in their Boise case, within six months, they arrested somebody for that crime. And they had actually put him in jail and had come across some other information that ended up, that they ended up letting him go. But they had already arrested somebody for that specific murder, um, from other information that was at the crime. And it was, it sounds like probably what it was is people had seen her drug dealer boyfriend go into the scene and find her dead. And then he fled as a result, Mm. thinking it was going to get pinned on him, which then made him look guilty and had all these people coming forward saying, yeah, we saw him there and we saw him run out of there and, and he got in his car and never came back. And, And so they actually went out and arrested him on that. Um, charge. So their case had a bunch of other hurdles that they really felt like we just don't have enough to arrest this guy with just DNA at the scene. Days after Cheryl's death, Floyd Parker was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. According to an AP report, Parker had been convicted in the death of another woman almost 15 years earlier. But they jumped the gun, and two months after the arrest of Parker, he was released because they couldn't substantiate a murder charge. He didn't do it. Unlike the semen found on the blanket in Cheryl Barrett's home, which had Lee Miller's DNA on it, the hairbrush tied Lee Miller to Marilyn. Damning physical evidence. At that point, we knew our case was very much stronger than their case was. And so I was able to get a murder warrant based upon that evidence. In January 2019, Marty flew out to Boise with an arrest warrant for Lee Miller for the murder of Marilyn Hickey. It was the first time that Marty had met Detective Monty Iverson in person, but it was like they were old friends. They'd been working their cases so closely. Now they strategized about how they would interrogate Lee Miller, who they left stewing in a room after he'd been arrested at a traffic stop. It had been 27 years since Marilyn's murder. The interview starts off as a get to know ya. At this point, Miller has no idea why he's been arrested out of the blue at a traffic stop. He looks like any regular old 52-year-old guy who's kind of lived a little bit more of a rough life. And he presented very friendly and like Joe Average Neighbor. And he was raising his two daughters uh, by himself. And he um, was holding down a job and was just a regular dude. There's nothing in his life that would raise any kind of red flags or anything. Then Marty dropped the bomb. What was your relationship with Marilyn Hickey? 
crash on her couch sometimes or at her place? Yeah. And you'd sleep there sometimes? Yeah. I'd sleep on the floor. Okay. And did you ever I'd bathe? wake up on the floor, I should say. Okay. Did you ever bathe there? I don't remember if I did or not. Okay. You say I was drinking a lot back then. And some things are spotty and some things come back. I mean, I remember going to the arcade all the time when I was growing up and hanging out down there. And the, I still remember some of my friends. And the laundromat arcade there, the yeah, Palace. Yeah. The one that, what's his name? Everybody always thought that he did it for insurance when it first. And here's where the interview chess match starts. Both sides feeling each other out. Lee Miller has no idea about the DNA found on the hairbrush, but he's got to be wondering what they have. For his part, he constantly changes the subject away from Marilyn, talking about random, unimportant details like the laundromat burning down and saying that he was drinking a lot back then and blacking out. This would be a 10-hour interview, so it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And what they are hoping is to get a confession for both murders, which means they need to do the work of building rapport. And whenever the questions get tough, Lee Miller is always reminding them of he was drinking a lot back then and blacking out. At some point, you're going to have to stand up and account for what happened here. And if that's your story, if your story is, I don't remember because I blacked out. I must have been blacked out because I just don't remember. I don't remember. If that's going to be your story, then I'm going to stand up and say, why didn't you ever go back to her house and play cards again? Why didn't you ever go back to her house and have sex again? I had a girlfriend. Well, you were there having sex with her that night. Why didn't you ever go back? Why didn't you ever play pool with her again? Why didn't you ever ask any of her friends about her again? I don't remember playing pool with her. Okay, I, I, you did play pool with her because you played that night that you guys were at the bar you played. I have a witness that put you there playing pool with her that night. So why didn't you ever go play? Why didn't you ever go drink with her again? Why didn't you ever ask anybody about her again? I've been to Bremerton, but I'm guessing back in the 90s, it's not that big of a town. No. That was going to be major news. You were going to run into somebody to hear about this lady who got killed. So even if you did black out, around, even if you did black out that night, and if that's the case, you can't tell me for the next year and a half that you were still in Bremerton, Washington, that you didn't hear about her death. No, I did not. That's I the issue we're going to have. I did not. That's the issue that the jury's going to have. I understand that, and I'm getting what you're saying, but I don't have any memory of this. More murder chronicles after the break. When the detectives brought up the Cheryl Barrett murder, the similarities between the way the women had been raped and murdered with scissors plunged into Marilyn Hickey and a knife plunged into Cheryl's chest, at some point, Lee Miller broke. Sort of. He admitted to killing Cheryl, but said it was an act of self-defense. The detectives pointed to a candy bar on the table, and they asked him, if it was self-defense, use that candy bar as a knife and show us. And so they're standing in front of me facing one another, and Monty holds up this candy bar knife in his hand and he says, was it about here or about here? And, and Lee adjusts his hand and says, no, it was about here. And he says, okay, so I'm coming towards you. And he takes a step towards Lee Miller and Lee reaches out and grabs his hand in this fluid motion and absolutely turns a candy bar and shoves it right into Monty's chest. Just exactly like our victim, his victim had been killed. 
with this knife shoved right through her chest bone. And it was so shocking and so quick that it, man, it made me stand up out of my seat. Like I was witnessing, you know, an assault or something in front of me. It was just, it was very shocking. And, and Lee was kind of, uh, at the, at the point, you know, he, he realizes, you know, that it all happened quick and he's like, Hey, I'm sorry. You know, I didn't mean to upset anybody, you know, but it was almost like he was literally reliving that moment when he shoved that knife into her chest. If her head was almost cut off and the things that you claim, I, I must have blacked out and I don't know what happened there, you know? So he always had this kind of blackout story that he went back to. Marty describes in that moment. Now, he's a seasoned detective at this point, but even he feels shocked by witnessing the sort of metamorphosis of a man who had just presented himself as this average Joe Blow. And then suddenly, in that moment, becomes a cold-blooded killer. And do you feel like at that moment, because I mean, I'm sure you knew in your mind, this is our doer, as you've said before, but it, yeah. it feels like, you know, people can present themselves in ways of, like you said, he's Joe Schmo. he's very average, he's, you know, partier that's now got grown daughters and he's harmless. But it's like in that moment, he inadvertently slipped that mask off and you saw him, who he is, right? Yes, absolutely. And the great part of it, I think, was, and I probably watched it half a dozen times after that, is what a great piece of evidence for, you know, if, if we had ever had to go before a jury, you know, it seems like you could put up that 30 second clip and build it up and just show them that little chunk. And I think that every person on that jury would be able to imagine him doing that exact same thing with a knife and not thinking twice about it. I mean, he just... It, it just was, I mean, for lack of a better term, it was just amazing to watch uh, him kind of turn it on and turn it off like that and become back to this regular guy and kind of apologetic and geez, I'm, I'm sorry and I hope I didn't alarm you, you know, kind of afterwards and, and showed you how he was truly this psychopath that could live one way one moment and a different way a different moment. Marty brought the interrogation back to Marilyn Hickey. We're kind of getting down to brass tacks here. We're running out of stuff to talk about. Um, I, I, the only again, thing I remember doing was going and playing cards and drinking and having sex with this lady. And there is ample evidence that those things happened. Okay? Ample evidence. I have witnesses who put you there. I have neighbors who put you there. I have a bartender who put you with her the night that she died. I have a taxi cab driver that has you in the taxi cab with her as the only person that got dropped off with her that night at her apartment at about 2.10 in the morning after the bar closed. There's about three hours there where she's last seen with you going into her apartment and she's never seen alive again. She's found dead and she's got your semen inside of her and your DNA on a hairbrush that's inside it. In yeah, I have no idea any of that. And the detectives called him on his denials. The two of them died as a result of injuries to their neck. The, the fact that both of them died right after or during sex. The fact that both of them died and ended up with heart wounds. Something shoved through their heart. Okay, the fact that you have a tattoo on your arm that has a dagger through a heart. You have a better chance of being winning the lottery or being hit by lightning bolt than having two women die in two different states where the last person that they're around has your DNA on their dead bodies. That just doesn't happen. There's no coincidence. I can't explain this. Eventually, Lee Miller made a deal. 
He confessed to the murder of Cheryl Barrett and was sentenced to 25 years. At his sentencing in court, he would say, quote, After drinking and using drugs on the night in question, I don't have a lot of memory of it, but I do remember stabbing Miss Barrett, and I want to plead guilty because I feel that I am guilty. I basically have no defense for this. Lee Miller took an Alford plea to the second-degree murder of Marilyn Hickey. An Alford plea is when a defendant asserts innocence, but acknowledges the evidence against them is so overwhelming they would likely be found guilty. Sentencing for the Alford plea in Washington State for Maryland's murder was at the discretion of the judge. By making these plea deals, Miller was no doubt hoping that the judge would sign off on a 25-year sentence for both murders. But instead, the judge sentenced Miller to 17 more years because of the brutality of the crimes. Once the judge decided that that was what she was going to do, it was she swung her gavel and it was all over with. I and it was that. kind of this <laughs> moment in the courtroom where it almost sucked the breath out of everybody who was in there because nobody expected it. And when she did it and she crashed down her gavel at the end of it after she'd made the ruling, she looked over at me because I'm sitting all by myself over in the jury box and gave me this just the faintest wink like, yeah, we got him. Don't worry about it. We're going to take care of things, you know, kind of thing. And I just thought that's just awesome. I just I just really appreciated that she understood the gravity of the case and said, no, this guy is not somebody who should be out amongst regular people anymore. During our interview, Detective Garland shares a detail that was kind of offhand and yet really telling about his relationship with Miller. Uh, we flew um, from Boise to Seattle and as we got up in the air, you know, and we're kind of banking coming out of Boise and turning towards Seattle. He turns over and he looks at me and he says, is this normal? And I said, oh, yeah, they always do this coming out of Boise. You know, they always take off going south and then you have to turn real hard and go back north towards Seattle. And he goes, OK, because I've never been on an airplane before. And this was his one and only airplane trip he'd ever taken in his life. And it was to go to prison for the rest of his life. And I just thought, man, there's some irony there. I don't know. It's just very interesting. It struck me in that moment that Detective Garland is sitting next to this murderer. He knows exactly what he did to these women. He's seen the photos. And yet, he is still able to keep him calm, and they're bonded in a bizarre way. That exchange on the flight is a small example of this. It isn't the first time when talking with a homicide detective that I've heard these sort of intimate details between homicide detectives and the killers that they put away. There is this unusual bond that develops between suspect and detective when you spend you know, 10 hours in a room with somebody sharing a meal and, and talking about the most intimate details of their life. And, you know, uh, you, be, you kind of develop this odd, I wouldn't say friendship, but kind of uh, kinship, you know, in as much as they develop this trust in you, that they're willing to share these things with you that they would never, if you had asked them at the beginning of the interview, they'd never say that they were planning on admitting. And, you know, you have to kind of overcome that and you have to develop this bond. And that that bond is a real thing, at least on their side. I mean, that's they there's been many times where I've been asked, you know, are you going to be there on my court date? Because I want to make sure you're there, you know, like they want to be able to know that you're going to be there like you're supporting them, you know, like you're their friend. And, you know, not realizing, yeah, I'm going to be there, but I'm going to be at the table on the other side of the room, not. <laughs> on your side, you know, kind of thing, because they, uh, there's this interesting dynamic that develops between people when they spend that much time uh, talking about intimate things um, 
that you know only the two of them know that well one because they were there and one because they've studied the case for you know many 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 hours on a side note Detective Garland says that Miller had never went into the why of his crimes. But Marty did look back through some records and found that Lee Miller was named as a person of interest in a home invasion rape case that was never solved back around the same time in the same neighborhood as Marilyn. But never convicted of it. And it happened only three months before Marilyn was ever killed. And it's almost like you could see he was working his way up to this or he had been committed this rape. And this woman had then come back to accuse him of it. So he had determined in his mind, okay, I'm not going to leave victims alive to point the finger at me anymore. I'm just going to kill them, you know, after I commit these rapes. When detectives asked Lee Miller if there were any more murder victims, he said, quote, I don't know. I hope not. And if you're curious why Marilyn had that scrap of paper with Lee Miller's name on it, the answer came from that tip that was called in from that McDonald's employee. Because Lee said he was looking for a place to stay in Bremerton, not up in Paulsville anymore. And I knew Marilyn knew a lot of people downtown. So I had told Lee I would pass his name along to Marilyn and she would contact him if she ever found a place for him to live. And that's why his name was on a scrap of paper in her purse. So interesting how things come around. And this guy worked at McDonald's with Lee Miller. That was the McDonald's Paulsville connection that somebody had called in and said, you know, hey, this guy who works at the Paulsville McDonald's named Lee Miller knows a little bit too much about the case. And that was also the connection to that piece of paper in her purse. So it's uh, it's interesting when you kind of, yeah, you get to see the whole puzzle, how the pieces fit together, you know, after you're able to see the, uh, the finished product. The linchpin in this case wasn't just the DNA, but the relationship and partnership in sharing information between Detective Marty Garland and Detective Monty Iverson. Which is ironic because so often the stories of law enforcement not working together often get the headlines. It's funny that you say that because I watch, you know, dramas on TV or movies or whatever, and they always play this, um, you know, the FBI comes in and takes over my case and darn that FBI. And I'm so mad, you know, as the local detective and, and, uh, and they're always trying to avoid the FBI taking their case and, and, in this interjurisdictional angst that we have. And it's so funny because, you know, I've been a cop for 20 years and being a detective for 10 years, and I've never, ever had anything that resembles anything like that ever happen in one of my cases. And I've worked with the FBI on a bunch of cases. In fact, these particular murder cases, they've offered a lot of help and done DNA stuff for us and done background stuff for us. And it's always tell me what you want. I'll go do that. And I'll bring it back to you. And then you tell me what else you want. You know, it's this great resource that they allow us to tap into, um, that they're just happy to do anything to help us on our case to further it that they can without any obligation to quote unquote, give it up or to, you know, give them all the glory or, you know, they aren't hardly even mentioned in most of our cases, but just, you know, a a report here or a report there about collecting this or interviewing that person or but sometimes those are so such big pieces that we aren't able to do ourselves because of uh, cost or uh, jurisdiction or things like that that it, it becomes uh, super helpful and and I think that that in my experience is the norm as opposed to uh, being the exception. And finally, I want to end with the victims, Marilyn Hickey and Cheryl Barrett, women who had families that loved and cared about them. Here's Marilyn's son, Robert Hickey, 
who spoke to KTVB News after Lee Miller's long-awaited sentencing. But I've been waiting for 26 years for this very day to happen. And when I got that call, I went, all right, we have something. We finally have something. In Boise, right under our freaking noses is the killer. And I'm glad the detectives did a hell of a job and kept at it and opened this cold case because if it wasn't for them, he would have never been caught. And for that, I'm thankful. He deserves everything he gets. And that's what I want to see. I want justice. 26 years worth. You only have one mother. One. He took it. You can never replace that, ever. Hey, listeners, before I let you go, if you're interested in learning more about this case and all the other cases we've covered so far on the Murder Chronicles, subscribe to Cavalry Plus on Apple Podcasts. There, you'll have access to the episodes ad-free and weekly bonus content where my producer, Brandon Morgan, and I really dig into the cases. And as always, thanks for listening. The Murder Chronicles is a Cavalry audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.